Well, welcome everybody, and I can see from your enthusiasm, and apparently we have another 160 people outside watching this by video link, that this, everybody is very excited that Dr. Eunice is here. I'm Mary Caldor. I'm director of the Center for the Study of Global Governance, um, and I can't say how happy I am to welcome Dr. Eunice here. Uh, we in the center produce every year a yearbook of global civil society, and Dr. Eunice is definitely a global civil society hero. <laughs> Um, what I, well, all of you know what he does, so I don't really need to tell you. He's the founder of the Grameen Bank. He's pioneered microcredit to very poor people, especially women, uh, and the idea has spread all over the world. He's played a role in Bangladesh politics but has come out of it. <laughs> He's one of Nelson Mandela's global elders, and somebody gave me, and I've just left it on the desk. I thought this was a real. I'll come back so you can hear me. I thought this was a real claim to fame. He got into Doonesbury, <laughs> and there's these two soldiers sitting in Iraq, and one of them says, "What are you reading? I'm reading a book about Dr. Muhammad Yunus." <laughs> He figured out if you made credit as little as $100 available to impoverished women, they could become self-sustaining entrepreneurs. Do you realize we could be lifting 3 million families out of poverty with what we spend in Iraq in a single day? <laughs> so um, that's a very good introduction. To, and with that, I'll let Dr. Yunus talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm very delighted to be here this evening, and uh, it's a great opportunity to share our experiences and our worries and our concerns about uh, issues that uh, we frequently mention. So I'll just share it with you on this occasion. Uh, I will not go into the details of... Uh, Grameen Bank, we started back in 1976. Only thing I would like to mention that uh, I was not a banker. I had no training in banking of any kind. I was uh, teaching in one of the universities in Bangladesh, Chittagong University, teaching economics. But I was uh, gradually drawn into it without any kind of background in uh, lending money or uh, any idea about banking. And that was the circumstances which pushed me into it. I, ne I never designed it that way. People kind of think about their future in terms of what they would be. As a child, we do that. We want to become the policeman. We want to become the pilot. We want to become the fire brigade guy or something, firefighters. But not even as a child, I thought I would be a banker. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, when I've grown up, that, that thought never came to my mind. But that's what I became. So people introduced me as a banker. So here I am. But what we did actually, 
could be done because I'd know, I knew nothing about banking. If I knew about banking, probably I wouldn't have done that. So this is one uh, consolation for people who don't know things. <laughs> There's a great future waiting for you. <laughs> this is an advantage, not knowing. Sometimes it is a real advantage, not knowing things. Because if you know things, you inherit a mindset. And once you have that mindset, you can't break through that mindset. And this is our biggest problem in life, breaking through the mindsets. And institutions like institutions of higher learning, where all these mindsets are really formulated. And once you go through it, you thought uh, you receive knowledge, now gives you a very clear vision to see the world. In reality, maybe other way. You lose your vision. The freshness of your vision is lost because we try to imitate. We try to fall in line with the existing thoughts. As most unfortunate thing, part of educational process, the way I felt all along. In the process of education, we become the mini professor, the professor who taught us, and we follow the professor so closely, we turn out to be this tiny image of that professor. That's why we have such a school of thought and such a school of thought. How come that in that school of thought, some other school of thought doesn't penetrate? Because everybody follows that procedure. I mention this because the greatest battle that I have to fight and still continue to fight is mindset. People tend to think the way they are trained to think. They cannot get away from that. So this is a challenge for academic system, educational system, how to retain the freshness of mind and at the same time bring the knowledge to the students. If you look at Grameen Bank, for example, every, uh, people would, uh, if you raise the question, how did you decide on the pr procedures that you have created into Grameen Bank? How did you design those things? Where did it come from? Whatever you have done. My answer would be a simple one. It's not exactly what it is, but it describes what it is. Whenever, well, almost in a lighter vein, I can say, whenever we need a little procedure rule in a specific case of doing our work in Grameen Bank in the early years, we just look at the conventional banks. What do they do in a, such a situation? And once we figure out what they do, we just do the opposite. <laughs> so if you take piece by piece, almost you'll see the reflection of it. Everything that we do, almost the opposite of what the conventional banks do. 
So sometimes people think that uh, microcredit means giving tiny loans, which is true, but they don't see how the whole system works. Then the real image of microcredit will come out. The basic principle of banking is the more you have, the more you can get. That's the basic principle. You have to have a lot to get a lot. The corollary of it, if you have less, you get nothing. And we reverse that principle, basic principle. Our principle is the less you have, higher attention you get from us. If you have absolutely nothing, you get the highest priority. So we started from that basic premise and built on the system from that. Conventional banks look at your position, your wealth, and against that, they give you new money to accumulate more. We dismissed that right on day one. We said, if you want to do business with the poorest people to ask for any position and design the system on the basis of that, it will be totally useless and ridiculous thing to happen. So we dismissed that. So we don't have collateral in Grameen Bank or in a microcredit program that we design. So no collateral. No guarantee and no lawyers. We don't have any lawyers. And these are the basic features of a conventional bank. You cannot go to a conventional bank and do business with them without lawyers kind of looking over you, everything that you do. So we said it's again, it will be useless to have all those things and you design something which doesn't depend on that. So basically it's a trust-based banking. And the funny thing, it works. And it's particularly amazing at this particular moment when you see the subprime crisis where you have the collateral, you have the lawyers, everything but didn't work. You are now ready to write off some $400 billion. And microcredit is going on for, with us for 31 years and many more organizations with lesser number of years, but it's a globally operating system. One common thing you hear about microcredit is a very high repayment rate, near about 100%. 98%, 99% is a very common thing that you hear. Despite the fact you are doing business with the poorest people. And conventional banks want you to have lots of experience in the business for which you are borrowing money. You are supposed to be an expert in your business. We go to women to tell her what Gamin Bank will do, give her a loan and so on kind of encourage her to take a loan and get into some income generating activity. And her answer is always, oh, please don't give me money. 
I don't know anything. She will repeatedly mention that I don't touch money. I never touch money in my life. Give it to my husband. But we don't walk away. In the beginning, my students who were working with me were kind of so frustrated. They said, why don't you just forget about women? Because they said they don't know anything. Why, how can you give something to people to do, who use money when they say they don't know anything what to do with the money? So repeatedly, I remember I had to talk to them for quite a number of times in details that when they say, no, I don't know what to do, I said, don't take it as their answers. This is not their voice. This is the voice of the history. The history which <coughs> generated fear after fear in them and made them believe that they are nobody. They have no capacity to do anything except take care of the children and the family. So that's how when you come with the money, they kind of get scared. Something terrible will happen to them. So our job is to peel off that fear layer by layer so that one day we can build enough courage in them then one or two will say, Please, well, let me try. So that's the day we'll be waiting for. So don't give up. We had to work for six years to bring the level of 50-50 because this is our initial decision that half the borrowers in our program must be women. Because I was complaining against the conventional banks, not only they are wrong by rejecting their poor people from their system, they are also wrong and unjust by rejecting women from their system, of all kinds of women at any levels of income. And I tried to point out not even 1% of their borrowers happen to be women. And this was the mid-70s that I'm complaining. Today, 2008, you can almost repeat the same complaint in Bangladesh. Situation has not changed. So I, I, when I began, I wanted to make sure half the borrowers in my system are women. So that's why we're going into the, to the women to explain to them and trying to encourage them to come. So it took six years to finally make it. Once we achieved that, we saw money going to the family through women brought so much more benefit to the family than the money that went to the family through men. I'll skip all the details. What are the elements that we saw happening? So we started raising the question, what is so good about 50-50? Why must we stick to the 50-50 rule? Why don't we open it up and concentrate on women if it is so good with women? So we did. And we started focusing on women. As a result, we moved from 50% to 60, 70, 90. Today, we have 7.5 million borrowers within Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, 97% women. And they own the bank. This bank, is owned by the borrowers themselves. We encourage the children of Grameen families to go to school. 
So we came up with a system where we finally succeeded in having 100, nearly 100% of the children being in the school. Then we started giving scholarship because some of these children not only went to school, they were at the top of the class where all the children of the village are studying. So this is a kind of a thrilling experience to see. Not only they, for the first time in their whole history of their family, someone went to school and he or she is at the top of the class. And we get a, every year we have a little ceremony in the village honoring this new recipient of scholarships and recognizing their parents and invite all the important people of the village to the ceremony so that the family and the child feels tall that yes, they have achieved something. Last year we have given 51,000 students scholarships for their performances in the schools. Then we saw these students gradually moved into higher education. Then we quickly introduced education loans. And we have 21,000 students right now in education loans going to medical schools, engineering schools, universities, everywhere. Some of them completed their PhDs. Some of them got scholarships in international institutions, in uh, universities, and now we are offered scholarships from Harvard. We just offered some scholarships from York College in uh, New York. MIT is uh, considering offering some scholarships to those children coming from Grameen families. So this is an amazing kind of thing that you notice. When you go, when I go to the villages and meeting these women who have been working so hard to make a difference in their life, it's an amazing experience to be with them. And now I see a new phenomenon coming added to that. When I'm visiting them, the daughter from the city comes in. She, is a, she just finished her degree in medicine. She is a doctor now. She is a practice. She is in, doing interny practicing as an internee in the medical college in the hospital. So she came because I'm visiting her village. So I see the mother and the daughter standing side by side. One is totally literate person who joined Grameen Bank some 10 years, 15 years back, took tiny loans, $50, $20 or whatever, started her life and sent her daughter to school. Now she is a doctor. So you cannot escape the thought in your mind looking these two ladies standing next to each other that her mother could have been a doctor too. But society never gave a chance to her, her mother. All we have done through Grameen Bank allowed her to improve her income and that capacity to send the daughter to school and encourage her to keep her in a school and gave her a, scholar, a student loan to continue and finish it. And she became a doctor. Her mother must have the same elements in her. There's no reason why she should be having less than what her daughter has. And then chance will have that the mother will be introducing her mother, an older 
lady inside the house because she's not used to being in the crowd what follows with all the people visiting the village. So she's still a shy old woman. Her mother has been to Grameen Bank, so she has changed her life in a different way, but mother never been to, the grandmother never, never been to such an experience, so she's still the same old woman. And when you meet her, again that same question comes to your mind. She could have been a doctor too. And the conclusion that you come to, that poverty is not, isn't, it's not in the person. Poverty is not created by the person. Poverty is created by the system. So if you want to address the issue of poverty, it's not rushing to her. It's rushing to us. What did we do wrong? Where did we go wrong? Fix that up. If we can pick up the seeds of poverty that we have put inside all the things that we build, the institutions, the policies, the concepts, nobody in the world will be a poor person. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong in the human being. We messed it up and then blame them. Ah, these are lazy people. Whatever. Sometimes I describe poverty by comparing them with the bonsai tree, the little tree that you grow in a flower pot. If you take the best seed of a tall tree in the forest and put it in a flower pot, it doesn't grow tall. It goes this big. And you wonder what happened to this tree? Why doesn't it grow? There's nothing wrong with the seed. We pick the best seed. Things that went wrong is the base that we allowed that seed is a flower pot. So it couldn't get the nourishment to grow as tall as the one that we saw in the forest. And I try to explain that poverty, the poor people is, is bonsai people. There's nothing wrong with their seed. Only we, the society never allowed them the space so that they can grow. <coughs> so it's not their fault. Fault is not in the seed. Fault is in the base that we provided to the seed. So if we change the base, they will be as tall as anybody else. So that's the challenge how to change that base so that people can grow. In Grameen Bank, uh, we encourage the children to go into education to create a new, completely new second generation. Because getting out of poverty is not just simply crossing the line, poverty line, whatever that line is. In a country like Bangladesh, crossing the line doesn't ensure that you remain out of poverty. Because we are a country with all kinds of disaster taking place all the time. Flood is a very common phenomenon. You read about Bangladesh when we have a bad flood. Last year we had two major floods. 
And then on top of it, we had a big cyclone with 250 kilometers per hour speed. Blown away everything we possessed, and then tidal surge came and washed away. Killed people, eliminated their livelihood, and so on. So that's the environment where we live. So we thought if we can concentrate on the second generation, if you can take this second generation to grow into a different kind of persons so that they will be far, far away from the borderline, the poverty line, so that even in a disaster comes, they will not be pushed back into poverty. So that's our effort to make so that we can do that. Several features I would quickly mention, uh, and this will be illustrated by something we practice in Grameen Bank. We have something like 2,500 branches all over the country. And each branch is graded by something, uh, evaluation system, on the basis of five stars. Like the hotels are evaluated on star system. It's a three-star hotel, four-star hotel, five-star hotels. Our branches are like that too. One-star branch, five-star branch, or three-star branch. Looking at the number of stars they got, you know what level of accomplishment they are at in a given moment of time. If a branch has 100% repayment record for the whole year, it gets a star, say green star. Each star has a color. By looking at the color of the star, you know what the accomplishment is. So green star will mean it has 100% repayment record, not 99.9. If they have enough surplus of deposits, then the loan that they give, then you get another star, a blue star. Each branch has to find its own money. Money doesn't come from anywhere else, not from the head office, not from the neighboring branch. When we open a new branch, literally we give an address to the uh, branch manager. Here is the place where you are supposed to open a branch, go there and open a branch. We don't give you any money. And he goes with his uh, address. He finds it where it is supposed to be. And his job and his colleagues who accompanied him to set up the branch, job is to mobilize deposits as a bank. He still doesn't have an office yet, but he starts mobilizing the deposits. As he mobilizes the deposits, his first task is to organize the poor women in the village so that she, he can start lending the money because then the income starts coming in. So he must rely 100% on the deposits of his branch to lend out money and then create a cushion surplus so that in emergency situation, still he doesn't have to borrow money from anybody. He has a cushion of excess deposits. So if the branch has such a cushion of excess deposits, then it gets another 
start. If the branch makes profit, our basic principle is when you open a new branch, not only you run the branch with the money that you mobilize in the same locality, also you must come to the break-even point within 12 months. So you can't just go around and wait around and wait to come to the break-even point in future. So his time limit is 12 months. And they do that. Within 12 months, they come to the break-even point. So the, as the branch comes to the break-even point, they get another star, say brown star. So looking at that brown star, you know, now it's a profitable branch. It makes profit. The fourth star comes when all the children of all the families of Grameen borrowers, all the children of all Grameen borrowers' families are in school. Not a single child is missed. Then you get another star, a violet star. And there are, on an average, a typical branch will have 4,500 borrowers. So 4,500 borrowers, if you even have two children on an average, you have nearly 1,000, 10,000 children to make sure that all of them are in school. Nobody is outside the school. When you can ensure that, then you get another start. So this is quite a tough task. They worked very hard to see how many of them left out, why they are left out, how to help them back into school if they have dropped out. It's a continuous struggle. But once you have ensured that, then you get the start. And when you have all these 4,500 families out of poverty, not a single family is in poverty then you get another star. So when a branch has a five stars, this is quite a significant achievement for anybody. I tell my colleagues that uh, if I had run the country, I would have given the state honor. Because after all, that's what the state is trying to do, help people get out of poverty. And you have done that with no cost to the taxpayers. You have done it on your own. The money came from the locality. Donors didn't come and help you out. It's all yours. So having a five-star branch is quite an achievement. You have solved the problems that you have set here for yourself. As all our branches are trying to get the next star, if you ever visit Grameen Bank, one of the first questions probably you will be asking a branch, when you visit a branch, how many stars you got? And what are the colors of those stars? Then you know what they have done. If they say we have, we have three stars, and most likely they will say, oh, we will get the fourth star by April this year. We are coming very close to it. Because everybody is planning when their next star is coming. When I address, uh, when I go and meet the colleagues in a meeting and the village and several branches, staff will come together to meet me and talk to me. So there will be 100 staff or 
150 staff or whatever the number. The traditional way this, the sitting pattern is, five star staff will be sitting in the front, <laughs> and the four is followed by the four star and the three star and all that, and a zero star, no star. And they accept that, and they, do, they sit in the front with a lot of pride that I have done that, I've, I've done my job. And we don't give any financial benefit for that. Many people asked us, why don't you give some financial benefit? And I always argue that financial benefit will take away their pride. It's not something you convert in money. You stand tall, you have done the work. This is your pride, you have contributed to your society. And when I meet them, and uh, I meet the one with no star, I always hear somebody saying, don't worry, we'll be sitting in the front next time you come. Because he knows that he still he has to earn a lot of stars. So he's assuring that they are working on it, and next time we meet, he'll, he'll not be sitting in the back, he'll be on the front. So that kind of energize the whole system that uh, you are doing something that you take pride in, you feel important thing that you do. And in connection with that, quickly I mentioned something else. It's also relating to pride. That's why I'm mentioning that. There are a lot of criticism about microcredit. One of the criticism has been always that one has to be really entrepreneurial person to benefit from microcredit. So the only the entrepreneurial poor are the ones who benefit from microcredit. And every time I hear that kind of comment, it really burns me up. Because I firmly believe all human beings are entrepreneurs. <coughs> no exception. This is a package in which human beings are born. It's not something that you can take away and still you call them a human being. That's how we came to this planet. That's how we survived on this planet. And that's what we are. Some may have discovered it. Some may not have discovered it. That talent that they have inside of them. Because society never allowed them to discover it. So the wonderful gift of creativity, entrepreneurship, and energy and innovativeness that each human being is born with, not every person is lucky enough to kind of unwrap that gift. You got the gift, but nobody ever allowed you to introduce you to that gift and never allowed you to unwrap it, have a peep what you got. You don't even know. You die without ever knowing what you, you had been, could have been. That's not her fault. That's not his fault. That's the fault of the society, which never allowed that opportunity. So after repeatedly debating on this, I, at one time I said, let's demonstrate it, because words don't seem to have meaning for them. So four years back, I talked to my colleagues, let's create a separate program where we'll exclusively focus on beggars. 
will lend money to beggars. My argument is you cannot be poorer than beggars. And if they can show some kind of entrepreneurship, then you made a point that even beggars have entrepreneurship. So we started doing that, and one way we decide to do is to go to the beggars, sit down with them, spend hours with them talking. Our first question that we wanted to have, at what point in life she became a beggar? It's a very important point. This is that society has pushed and pushed and pushed and finally brought her to the tipping point. And she couldn't take it anymore and stretch her hand. Please help me. I cannot survive anymore. Help me to survive and feed my children. And by understanding this process, you understand the whole society, how a society can do, how ruthless it is to push a person to that level. After we go through this process, and then at one point we said, well, we can do something if you want to. As you go from house to house begging, would you like to carry some merchandise with you? Some cookies, some candy, some toys for the kids, or whatever people would like. And if you want to do that, we'll do the financing. That will be your business and we'll be your financier. And people started liking it. Why not? And we encouraged them. We said, after all, you're going there anyway. <laughs> this is no extra work for you. So give people option. And they may like it. They may like to buy something from you. And then you make money. Or they may like to give you something as a charity at the same time, buy something from you. It's up to them. But they have two options. And it became, of course, popular with the beggars. But what is amazing, it became extremely popular with our staff. I didn't expect that. I thought they will be grumbling, oh, we have already had enough work. Now he comes about to beggars. <laughs> Instead, they kept pressuring that they want to take more beggars into the program. Because I made the rule, nobody can take more than one beggars to serve. They became so involved in it, they want to take more beggars. I said, no, just one beggar. My idea was, if you have too many beggars with you, probably you will not pay attention to them. So if it's one, you pay attention. This is in addition to their regular work. So they would be doing everything else. This is additional responsibility and optional responsibility. Nobody is required to do it. If anybody would like to do it, they will be free to do it, but one beggar. We have 27,000 staff. And very quickly there was 27,000 beggars. And they were saying, give us 10 beggars. We can handle 10. I said, no way. The pressure became so unbearable, finally I allowed two, three, four, step by step. 
Now we are at the four level. So we have more than 100,000 beggars in our program. In four years, the amazing thing is, more than 10,000 beggars have quit begging completely. They are just door-to-door salesperson. Some of them became very successful personal shoppers. Because in Bangladesh, like many other countries, women cannot go to the market to buy simple things for household requirement. So she has to tell the husband, please bring me matches, bring me this, bring me. And when husband comes home at night, ask, did you bring it? Oh, I forgot. (laughs) So now she found a way. This person is becoming a kind of go between the market and the woman here in the village. And the remaining 90% or 90,000 beggars, I would say they are part-time beggars. (laughs) They are mixing begging and selling at the same time, but still in the process. My impatient colleagues, some of them, said, why can't they get out of begging like the others? I said, don't push them. That's not what the whole idea is. Don't push them. They are in the process of closing down their begging division. And this is their core business. (laughs) So to close down the core business takes a lot of time. After all, they have been doing it for a lifetime. You don't expect that they will just close it down and walk away. And in the meantime, they have to build up their sales division. So it's a restructuring of the business. And when you talk to these beggars, they're very smart people. And when I ask how how is business going and so on, they tell which house is good for begging, (laughs) which house is good for selling. So I wonder, this is good. They know on the market segmentation. (laughs) It's amazing. We never trained them. All we did is just a loan to buy the things they would like to carry around. And they figure out which is a good thing, which running item which sells well, gradually shift into those items. And the loan that we give, typical loan is just about $12, $15. With a $15 loan, if you can help a beggar to change his own life, Why can't we do more of it? Society is so blind that it wouldn't even allow this $15 loan to a beggar who would like to change his or her life. Our idea is very simple. We said, this is a loan. You have to pay it back whenever you can. But there is no interest on this loan. It's an interest-free loan. So it will never grow. So don't worry about it. It is getting big. It won't get big. And there is no time limit. So you'll never become a defaulter in the banking terms because there is no time limit. So how can I be a defaulter? So you're totally immune from all those things. But if you can pay back and take another loan, bigger loan, whatever you want to do, 
And there are many beggars now who have gone through the second loan, now gone through the third loan, very quickly. So again, coming back, if a beggar can figure out how to do run business and change his life and her life, how can we say that they are to be blamed for their poverty? If the system is at fault, then why don't you fix the system? Institutions are at fault, then why don't you fix the institution? Like banking institution, for example, which never gave any loan to the poor people. Two-thirds of the world population don't have the eligibility criteria satisfied in the eyes of the conventional banks. So they, will, they are not creditworthy in their eyes. So this is what happens. So why don't you fix the, those institutions? 31 years back, they could say these are not creditworthy. Today, they can't say that because this recent one proved it again. They are more creditworthy than the borrowers of the conventional banks. That's where you have, have to write off those billions of dollars. So why don't you give the loan here? Sorry. So this is the question. And I've been raising the question again about the institutions, about the concept. And one concept that I focus on is the concept of business. Concept of business, we have learned in our theory books, in economics books, is to maximize profit. That is business. And I look at it, I say, look, economists, the theoreticians who build these theories, they assume human beings are like money-making machines. They look like robots. They just maximize profit. But the real human beings are not robots. Real human beings are not single-dimensional human beings, which economic theory tells us. Real human beings are multidimensional human beings. That's what the beauty of a human being. Why can't we bring the whole human being into economics rather than cut off the real interesting part of human being and keep only the money part of human being? That's not a fair thing, fair interpretation of human being. So I'm arguing that if you want to justify the totality of human being, you would need at least two kinds of business. One that we already have, making money. The other business is the business to do good to people, do good to the planet. And I'm calling it social business. It's a non-loss, non-dividend company with a social objective. So if you can, if the traditional business or the business that is recognized in economics is all about me, I want to benefit everything. That's how I run business. It's all have to come to me. I'm the owner. The other business, social business, is all about others, nothing about me. Just the reverse of it. Then we put together, well, that's what the human being is. Human being wants to make money. At the same time, human being wants to be helpful to others. That's part of human being. You can't deny that. But today we cannot exercise that. If you want to exercise it, you have to step outside of economics and become a philanthropist, become involved with charities. Why can't we 
within the economic world and be full human being. So that's the idea of social business. And if you can create a social business, this could be much powerful than charity and philanthropy. Because in charity, charity dollar has only one life. You can use it only once. You want to do it again, you have to find another dollar to do it. So you are dependent on somebody to do it, repeat it, because it doesn't go beyond one life. But if you can transform this whole thing into a social business, social business dollar has endless life. It recycles and it's sustainable. It creates an institution. Charity doesn't create a permanent institution. It's a, it's a program. It's a project. You do it, you achieve it, and that's the end of it. If you want to repeat it, you have to have fresh money to do it again. But not in business. In business, it circulates. And I give the example in my book about several ones. One of the things that we did is a, now became well-known is a Grameen Danone company with collaboration with Danone, which makes yogurt. We created that yogurt company, Grameen Danone company, as a social business. Both sides agreed this will be a social business for a social purpose. Purpose is there are millions of malnourished children in Bangladesh and many other countries there, but we have our share of millions of children because their diet is so poor. So what we have decided, we'll take all the micronutrients which is missing on the children, put it into the yogurt, all the vitamin, iron, zinc, iodine, whatever, and then sell this yogurt at a very cheap price to the children of poor families. And they will enjoy it because it's a delicious yogurt. And they love it. And the company recovers its cost. It's not based on subsidy. It's not based on charity. It's a company. It's a, it recovers its money. But the both partners, Danone and Grameen, agreed they will never take any dividend out of it because it's a social business. In social business, you don't take dividend out. You can take back your investment money, exactly what you invested, nothing more than that, and stop there. Because all the profit made by the company stays with the company to achieve the goal that you have set for. So here the bottom line is how much impact you have made in life of people. That's the bottom line. Unlike the bottom line, how much money you made in your business. So these are the two different kinds. And if we accept that, then we complete the primary completion of the structure of the theory so that you can address all the issues of poverty, healthcare, nutrition, or uh, safe drinking water, sanitation, transforming that into social business and make a difference and overcome all the problems that we see around ourselves. So that's the piece that I want to add into the structure so that we can all create that. Then in the schools where the business schools, which gives you MBAs, young people to be trained so that they can go out and join the profit-maximizing company, work hard to make them earn more profit. So I said, if you accept the social business, then we have to have another department in school, which will be creating social MBAs, who will be trained how to design social business, how to measure impacts, how to reduce the cost so that you can go to the poorest people and improve the health, improve the 
conditions or whatever the social goal you have defined because the whole thing will be calculated completely differently. Because one of the issues that are raised when I was doing, dealing with the Grameen, uh, with the Danone, when they were sh- I was asking what kind of cup you use in uh, selling the yogurt because they sell yogurt all over the world. So they showed me the cup. I said, is it biodegradable? They said, no, it's not biodegradable. I said, why can't you make biodegradable cups? Because I don't want to see Bangladesh rural area littered with plastics just because we sold them yogurt. They said, well, we have to do some research. I said, go do the research. So they went around the world to figure out how to make biodegradable cups. And finally, they came back very excited. We found it. So why? Where? So we found it in China. It's a cornstarch. Very good material, and it satisfies all our condition. And they brought, made some cups with cornstarch. And I looked at it. I said, can I eat it? I said, why do you want to eat it? I said, because people are, poor people are paying for it. Why should they pay for something which they have no use for? <laughs> why can't you find the substance, some material, which kids can eat? along with the yogurt, then money shouldn't be wasted. They said, we can't find this thing. I said, you'll find it. I said, when I buy ice cream, I get a cone. <laughs> and I love cones. <laughs> Why can't you have something like that? I said, no, cones material will not work. I said, find the one that will work. Because that, that cup also should carry Nutrition. Because after all, they are paying for it. And finally, I convinced them. They got very excited. That yes, this is a correct way of looking at it. But we have a research facility, huge research facility in Paris. We're going to ta- giving the task to our scientists to find it. I said, how long will it take? Said, About a year or so. I said, no, can you make it six months? Because otherwise, there will be lots of useless expenditure on these cups. People will be making, but uh, no nutrition. The reason I mention all this, the moment you design something as a social business, a lot of other issues come up. In the profit-maximizing business, you don't see that because you are busy to make money. How big you make the container, the bigger it is, make more money you make, you make it bigger unnecessarily. You spend a lot of money in packaging just to lure you in. You don't get anything out of it. But they get the money. In the process, you waste resources. So if you can fix the concepts, if you fix the institutions, nobody will be a poor person in the world. There's no need to this. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. So we can create a world free of poverty. And then I said, only place we can see poverty will be poverty museums. We'll build another museum in London <laughs> where they will show where poor people used to live in this country and now there is no poor people in this country. And similarly in many other countries. And let's fix the date on which we'll inaugurate that poverty museum in each country. Thank you very much.
Hello, Dr. Yunus. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for Thank coming you. today and for inspiring a lot of people here today, I think. Um, I just have a question uh, regarding some of the more recent research that came out um, regarding microfinance. Um, there's no doubt that it has changed the reality of a lot of women in Bangladesh um, and that it has empowered a lot of people. Um, but there is some research showing that uh, a lot of the money that is borrowed is actually controlled by the males in the household. The woman goes and borrows the money, but it's actually, uh, it's actually used and controlled by the man. Um, and also that changing the social dynamics in the household can sometimes put the woman um, in danger of, of becoming a victim of, of domestic violence. Um, so these are some of the more nuanced um, things that are coming up now that there has been, you know, 30 years of experience with microfinance. Um, and I'm just wondering what kind of steps Grameen is taking to address some of these issues. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll take you down here. It's a good idea to say who you are because it's nice <laughs> to know. Uh, I'm Puya. I'm studying development here. Uh, the question I had, you mentioned the money part of human beings is only taken care of in economics or banking or businesses, and you want the whole human being to be considered. I do agree with that, but why are you also focusing on money as a means of helping the poor? Isn't it affecting them and monetizing them? Because I have an experience, the nomads in Iran, they were uh, exposed to primary education, 10 schools, it was really a good idea, it really worked. Most of the children in these 10th primary schools were really successful, but it ended up in urbanizing them, changing their way of life, the whole nomadic thing. I don't say we had to conserve it as a folklore or whether it was good. Thank Just you. Okay. I'll take you up here. Good evening, sir. My name is Sagar Srivastav. Um, uh, my question was that despite the considerable success of microfinance organizations and social business initiatives in raising the standards of living, uh, it is still widely accepted uh, that such initiatives are severely restricted in uh, their transformational capacity, that is, in their ability to uh, take nation states into an altogether higher developmental trajectory. And uh, in that context, um, what ultimately serves that purpose is, is that the government must uh, reinvent itself and invest heavily in education and health and in infrastructure. 
And thus, uh, do you agree with the very unfortunate proposition that the advent of microfinance is making governments around the world shirk away from their primary obligations to its people? Sure. Uh, okay, let me go quickly again uh, <clears throat> to allow more questions to come uh, about the control of uh, women into it. Uh, the idea comes because uh, assumption is you give loans to women, so men are deprived, so they take the loan from the women to use for themselves. That's what, not what Grameen works. Grameen is a system where Women becomes a representative of the family. She can borrow from anybody, for her husband, for her son, for her other daughter, whatever she wants. So there is no restriction. So if husband gets his own money, uh, there will be less tendency for taking over his wife's money because, after all, uh, each one is contributing to the family income. So this is one way to look at it. The other way, the, one of the study that I saw in the past saying that uh, this control issue said uh, they are finding is 61% of the women in, bank, in Grameen Bank have no control over their money because uh, or, or no control or partial control over their money. Uh, that's 61%. And when this result was published and uh, people were asking me, oh, this is terrible, it's uh, only six, uh, 61% of the people have no control or partial control over the money. I said, I don't look at, <coughs> I don't look at it this way. I thought this is a great uh, good news. Good news is 39% of the borrowers have total control over the money. In a country which is totally dominated by men, if Grameen has helped 39% of women to control totally their money, this is something the best of the news I ever got. Uh, so I see it that way. And the people who studied it, I hope, will join me uh, to make it from 39% to work hard to make it 40% next year. That's the way it works. I mean, you don't solve all the problems overnight. If the problem is there, you address it, pull your resources so that you can do that. So you, so you can look at it, that spirit also, if there are... Uh, still some gaps that, yes, she cannot keep the control of it. And I asked the uh, researchers, I said, uh, uh, the way you presented it, it looks like there is a terrible thing happening uh, with the women here. Would you recommend at the end of your research that uh, instead of giving money to women, why don't you give money to men? It solves all the problem. Uh, no domestic violence, nothing. You'll be very peaceful completely, and that will make our life easy. Because uh, you re recommended that uh, uh, women shouldn't be given any loan, because uh, women uh, giving loan to women creates all these problems. Uh, but they didn't want to do that. They want to mention this. So this is where we are. I mean, the reality of the situation, yes, this is a male-dominated society, and we can all work hard to make it happen. Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about many details about the violence and so on. A woman who has no money, no income-generating capacity, is she more prone to domestic violence? Or a woman who has a bank account, who owns a bank, uh, who earns money, she is more prone to domestic violence. I don't get the point. 
And as if, if you don't have the money, that would have been better for domestic violence-wise. Uh, having money uh, doesn't change the situation. I mean, uh, there's something wrong in my understanding that uh, how these things happen that way. So I'll leave it that. Uh, about uh, money, yes, uh, we uh, use money. Uh, we have not seen any other kind of economy, so we don't know how to handle the other money. So, <laughs> so we all, you, you wait for your money at the beginning of the month. You have not changed it either. <laughs> so don't blame me for that. Uh, so now that you are in school, figure out how to uh, run the world without the money. Then I'll join you. <laughs> yeah. And transforming the nomad into urban people or changes. I mean, any, any uh, development, any uh, movement always incur changes. You can't leave the same old way when you have your laptops and... Uh, 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 iPods and all kinds of things. You can't go back to that. It's always moving forward. You may reminisce in the old style of life, uh, feel sorry that you have to come out of it, but that's the way society moves. So I, I wouldn't regret that uh, because of the changes we have moved to one lifestyle to another lifestyle. As long as this lifestyle is not harmful to others. That's all we have to be very careful. Uh, so the basic thing is my lifestyle should not harm anybody else in the world. And that is a number one fundamental question right now in the context of global warming, in the context of climate change and all that, because this is all lifestyle issue. So we could not have a lifestyle to harm other people. Uh, about the uh, development issues, higher development, yes, of course. Uh, and education, health. I went out of the way, luckily, to discuss our education program. So if you say we have uh, denied education, only concentrate on uh, uh, income generation, uh, probably you could blame me for that, uh, have some score. But today I think one of the things we did, ensuring 100% children of Grameen families going to school. And we have done that. Uh, before the government has done that for the rest of the country. So this is one step forward that we c even the poorest people can, draw, can be brought to school, their children come to school. And not only they come to school, I was uh, elaborating the how many of them, thousands of them are in higher education. We'll never see the face of a higher education if this program probably uh, didn't, uh, was not introduced. Uh, today they are professional people, they are uh, completing their higher degrees and so on. So that way, this is also taken care of. If this can take care of, say, no, 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 leave it alone. Let government do it. I wouldn't do it like that. If I can do it, I'll do it before government does it. Uh, just because they're government, they don't have to be punished. No, no, we all sit together, tight our hand. You do it because you're the government. I'm not on that side. I said, if I can do it, I'll do it, lessen the burden on the government. Because government is a machinery which is very slow. By nature, you can't do it. And it doesn't adjust to changes. And the world is changing very fast. And government will be lagging behind at every step. Because it's a, by nature, it is less uh, innovative. By nature, it's a slow in response, slow in action. So people are much faster in adjusting and doing things. So if we take responsibility to, through social businesses and so on, all these problems can resolve and government can concentrate on the issues that we can't handle, governance, 
ensuring that the proper uh, 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 rule of law uh, and many other things. Uh, if certain things we still can do, they can continue to do that. But if the citizens can do it better, solve the problem, why must we punish the government? No, 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 you have to do it yourself. So I would not on that side. And health, yes, I would say, I always insisted that income is the best medicine for the poor people. So if you have the health, if you're talking about the health, if you don't have the food regularly, what is the health? So income comes and health improves, and that's why one of the health issues that I just mentioned about the nutrition, uh, the Danone and the yogurt and so on, uh, I don't think government is going to start a yogurt factory uh, very soon. But if you can do that, why not? Why don't you say, why do you think, no, 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 you are not supposed to do the malnutrition, it's out of your jurisdiction. I don't see any limitation of my jurisdiction. If I can do it on my own, I will go ahead and do it whether you like it or not. Thank you. Well, I've got lots more people and we've only got um, 15 minutes. So <laughs> I'll take another three and with luck we might be able to get to another three. So, David Lewis. Thanks. I'm, I'm David Lewis. I work in the social policy department here. And, uh, thank you David, very much for your... Is it turned on? It's on, I think. It's on. Yeah. There we are. Sorry. Um, yeah, thank you very much for your presentation, which I enjoyed very much. I'd like to ask you a question about your point about... Um, the need to transform institutions, the institutions that people operate in. And as many people will know, Bangladesh is at the moment in a, you know, in a political crisis. And I'd be interested to hear your own uh, reflections on that in the light of the fact that you have, from time to time, uh, become involved in that national level institutional processes and government in uh, caretaker governments and also in um, your interest in uh, starting a political party or a political movement um, and it would be interesting to hear your reflections on the current state of the nation in the light of your experiences that's a huge question <laughs> that's a big question um, for the rest of the evening back, um, there are two ladies in the back so I'll take them both and then we'll come up to you lot, and there's one person there. Good evening, Professor Yunus. My name is Carmen. I wanted to ask also about your reflections on uh, micro-health insurance. Thank you. Um, I'm Philips Robinson from BBC World Service. Professor Yunus, is this um, specific to Bangladesh in some ways? Do you think your type of social business could be replicated anywhere else in the world? And are there any basic requirements that you would have to have uh, for you to be able to um, do the same elsewhere. And I'll just take the last person down here and then for the next round we'll go up to the balcony. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you for a great talk, Professor. Um, there has been a slight shift in, in the sort of consciousness about social business, but, but to have an actual sort of bona fide second economy, um, especially as, as it moves beyond geography uh, and banking and culture, wh what do you think the biggest barriers are and what do you think the solutions are in the next sort of 20 plus years? <laughs> 
gosh. <laughs> We've got some very big questions. Yeah. Oh, I'll try to, to see. <laughs> yeah, on the political crisis, yes, we have a political crisis. One of our problems in Bangladesh, like many other countries, uh, very uh, uh, confrontational politics in our country. So people, uh, politicians fighting with each other. So. Uh, and extreme corruption. Bangladesh was uh, put at the top of the most corrupt countries in the whole world, not once. For consecutive five years, we were the champion corrupt country. <laughs> so that's where we are. And uh, luckily, uh, that kind of ended uh, with the emergency where uh, new caretaker government has been formed. And they're going through the cleansing process and doing it very seriously and very well, uh, uh, preparing for the election at the same time punishing uh, the corrupt politicians, at least uh, put them into the trial. And our two former leaders, uh, prime ministers, are in jail going through the trial process. Many ministers, more than a dozen ministers, are in uh, jail going through the trial process. Some of them have already been uh, sentenced to jail uh, through the because of the corruption. So we're hoping some this cleansing process will lead us uh, to a better political situation. The interesting part uh, that uh, kind of surprises everybody is that despite all this corruption, long history of corruption, mismanagement, misgovernance, Bangladesh has been moving forward. The poverty has been declining very steadily in Bangladesh. Uh, reduction of poverty was uh, on an average of 1% per year during the decade of 90s. And the first five years of uh, 2000, the decline in poverty is 2% on an average each year. And for the next five years, probably more than 2%. Uh, despite uh, all this period of turmoil, political unrest, uh, general strikes, uh, close down of businesses, everything is happening. Uh, this is the trend of the poverty reduction. And again, if you continue only with 2% per year, which was the first five years, if you continue with that rate only, we will be one country very comfortably reaching the Millennium Development Goal number one to reduce poverty by half by 2015. And in the next following year, if we can increase it slightly above 2%, which most likely we will, we will be reaching the Millennium Development Goal number one ahead of 2015. So when you, people say, ah, this is a Millennium Development Goal, you don't take it seriously. Uh, uh, United Nations always come up with crazy goals, never, <laughs> never achieved. And they have good reasons to say that because you remember during the 90s, everybody is uh, going around health for all by the year 2000, education for all by the year 2000, everything for all by the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> and when 2000 came, People forgot what we said. <laughs> so, but this Millennium Development Goal is a very serious business. And countries, many countries are taking seriously. Bangladesh is one. And of the eight Millennium Development Goals, on six of them, right, we are right in the middle of the Millennium Development Goal period from 2000 to 2015, right in the middle. On six of them, we are comfortably on the track ahead of the requirement. On two, we're slightly behind, but we can catch up as we 
go to the rest of the so most likely i mean um, bangladesh will be one of those countries in the whole world which will be achieving all the eight millennium development goals on health indicators bangladesh 25 years back was the lowest in south asia but something is happening to bangladesh all the health indicators are moving and bypassing all the neighboring countries all the south asian countries it has overtaken now india it has overtaken pakistan so we are ahead of them in health indicators and our health system is a is a joke <laughs> but it still is happening so again despite all those mismanagement something in bangladesh has come which put this uh, strength to the whole economy uh, if you look at the uh, economic growth as a whole the growth rate has been consistently on an average of 5% during the decade of 90s at this moment is a 6.7% growth rate in bangladesh so economy is growing universal primary education already has been achieved our worry is probably the girls will be missed out in the secondary education because parents will withdraw the girls only the boys will predominate the secondary education but the reality is completely different today girls outnumber boys in all the secondary education all levels of secondary education so something is uh, positively happening inside of bangladesh so that way uh, we feel good but at the same time our feeling is if we had a better government if we had not caught in those corruption cycles if we had a politics which is uh, moving take the nation forward our speed would be much much higher than what we have achieved so far that's what we regret uh, so this is one on the health insurance yes we have introduced health insurance and it works very well uh, our health insurance is uh, uh, a family pays something like dollar 50 cents a year with dollar 50 cents entire family comes under health insurance coverage for that a uh, fully qualified doctor is placed in the village and with paramedics with health assistants and and a clinic and a um, pathological laboratory and 90% of the cost is borne by this uh, health insurance premium so that way we are pretty good in that and we are in uh, several about 35 areas that we have done that and we can quickly come to uh, 100% that's no problem with us and we can expand it nationwide the problem is only one we cannot retain the doctor this is is killing the whole process now we have decided we will go the whole way we are we are in the process of creating a medical college we'll train our own doctors and start from the village they come out of the system and they start from the village step by step they will come forward we'll have a whole career plan for them and we'll have a nursing school and we'll have hospitals we'll have a chain of hospitals so that we can deliver our own health services on our own as a social business so this is what our next step is so but the interesting part is people like this idea of health insurance and it's a, something affordable dollar 50 cents for the whole year for the whole family uh, and they like it but we cannot provide the service so we cannot proceed uh, even running these 35 centers is having extremely difficult problem we recruit the doctor in a couple of months they go because they want to find a job in city they won't like to live in the village so this is where we are right now 
whether social business can be replicated. It's a very simple idea. Why shouldn't it be replicated? I thought you'll be replicating in your place. That's what I was hoping. But <laughs> uh, it is replicable. Today I was talking to the editorial board of uh, Guardian, and one uh, was asking, would you consider Guardian as a social business? I said, tell me the story then. <laughs> Who owns it? He said, the trust owns it. I said, okay, you uh, have one point there. Uh, does, <laughs> does the trust uh, get the profit out of the uh, Guardian as a company? He said, no, it's all plowed back into the company, uh, the Guardian. I said, then it's a social business. So you have right here. If this, all this information is correct, then it's a case of social business. That's what he said. Is that there's a social objective, and uh, owner doesn't take any profit out of it. Profit stays with the company, and that's it. And it's a, it's a, uh, a non-loss business. I hope Guardian doesn't lose money. <laughs> so it's a social business. So there are maybe instances already. Simply, we never recognize them as such because there was no need to because this is not a special category. Now we are creating as a special category. Then we'll start collecting them because we have to build the social stock market. And we have to list all those companies in the social stock market so that people can go and invest in those companies which is doing good to the people. Uh, it's replicable, but definitely we're getting a lot of, lot of letters uh, coming to us from many different countries to help them set up Grameen Danone companies in their countries. That's very simple. So they would like to have a social business in their countries, and specifically this particular one because it's uh, the same problem, malnutrition. So if it works for Bangladesh, it can work for anybody else. Uh, barriers, the last question. The barriers in social business, yes, uh, first barrier is a mindset that can we accept this new idea? Can we create it? If we create it, then you need to have all those things coming out, social, social business fund, so that we have a fund there, so anybody who wants to go to social business, they can be investing it uh, as a venture capital or give them loans out of it, so we need a new financing mechanism. At the same time, we need the brilliant ideas of social business. Uh, so this is uh, a task for the uh, young people or experienced business people to design social business concepts. A, a business plan for a social business in healthcare, in uh, whatever, uh, water or uh, uh, housing, uh, wherever you see a problem, how to get children out of the street, how to fight the drug addicts, uh, help them, or how to help welfare people out of welfare. Anything you see as a problem, can we design something as a social business, help them get out? So some will come out with a brilliant idea. And that's what we'll be waiting for, and then investment will come. We are trying to create websites to bring in all those ideas so that we can learn from each other and we see the business plan and somebody say, this is a great idea, I'm going to do it. I'll find the money and I'll do it. This is how it will be solved. Uh, sitting there watching, writing essays will not help us. <laughs> Thank you. Now I'm going to apologize deeply to everybody on the balcony. Oh, no. You promise at least give one. <laughs> All right. We'll take one from the balcony. Well, yeah, right. And uh, on my principle okay. of always taking women, I'll okay. take <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, my question is uh, more about how not about the outcome of your project and 
everything you've done, but how you got to it. Because I can see that now with all the history of all your project and all you've done, convincing people that it's a good idea is much easier than it was in the beginning. As you mentioned, and as you mentioned uh, we are human beings and we are made of a part which is driven by uh, private drive and another part which is social and social care. But sometimes we come to the system in which we are driven just to act towards our private uh, gains. And how do you, in, in, in this system, how do you convince people that it's worthwhile taking care of the other side of our souls and really um, engaging into a social um, um, business idea? And how do you change this mindset? Yeah. Uh, one way is uh, whether the idea, first of all, in the first, when you hear it, does it make sense? The question people ask me right away, are people crazy to do business, not make money? And my answer is, you know what? People are crazier than that. <laughs> they just give away their money. Not only thousand dollars or a million dollars, they give away billion dollars, just like that. So what's wrong with running a business and getting the money back? So I see this is much saner thing than giving away money. <laughs> so you never objected people giving away money. So people don't see that. That, yeah, that's true. People give away money. Not only they give away money, they give away money to, to their cats, to their dogs. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> and you can't run a social business? So I said, it's such a simple little thing. It, if it makes sense, if it makes sense to you, you'll be talking to your friend that it makes sense to me. That's all. And that's the way it will come. That's how I tried to put together the, uh, in the book that explains. I thought this will kind of talk to individual persons. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, if you look at the whole economic system where today it's all about making money, nothing else. Profit maximize, not only making money, maximization of it. In the process, sometimes it becomes a gung-ho profit making. You go wild making money. Your eyes sparkle. Gum, get them, get them. <laughs> so that's the way it is. I said, look, uh, what people would really should have been doing, this is a place, profit maximizing place, where you make money. Yes, you make money. This is a means this is not an end. The other side, social business is the end. You make money here, this is what you do with your money. What do you do with your money you make money? Nothing. How many houses can you buy? How many cars you can buy? How many yacht you can buy? Nothing. You make money here, you use money here. This is a means, this is the end. People forgot. They thought the means is the end. So keep on making money, keep on making money. Go to the stock market, be, become oh, rich, twice as rich, 100 times as rich, 1,000 times as rich, go on. People forgot what they are supposed to be doing in this world. So this, just a reminder, what is this world is about? What do we do with it? And then we'll find the answer. Thank you very much. <laughs>